Scripture. You can look through the Old Testament and you see it time and time again. The New Testament, you see it time and time again. Even the crux of all history, when Jesus gives his life on the cross, it's about suffering. It's about a trial. And, and I think we see throughout Scripture that this is a theme. So therefore, we are going to be kind of a little bit all over the place. Now that being said, we are going to concentrate in James. So if you want to turn to James, please feel free to do that. We're going to be right in James chapter 1, one of the classic texts on trials. And we're going to be there. So if you want to turn to James chapter 1 to begin, we'll, we'll get there in just a second. While you're turning there, I want to draw your attention to an article that I came across this week. I actually saw it on the news one morning. And normally don't watch news in the morning, but uh, circumstances allowed me to sit down on the couch for a few minutes. And I was able to watch some news. And this was one of the headlines that was going on the bottom line that was scrolling through. And I thought, oh, why? You know, why does this type of thing happen and uh, why did I have to even see that this happened? But as I was preparing the sermon this week, this news item kept coming back to the top of my mind. Because what we're going to talk about today, I think, has a direct correspondence. And I'm going to read the article, and then I'm going to kind of connect it to what we're looking at today. Uh, and here's the, the title of the article, and maybe you've heard about this, you've seen it on the news. Christian Charity Head Admits Using Donations for Sex Habit. The president of a Christian charity in Iowa admitted that he embezzled nearly a half million dollars in donations and used the money to pay for a sex addiction, federal prosecutors, prosecutors say it, said on Tuesday. John S. Peterson of Cedar Rapids pleaded guilty Monday to one count of filing a, ta- a false tax return. He is released from custody pending a sentencing hearing which hasn't been scheduled. Peterson, 55, is the longtime president of World Ambassadors LTD a nonprofit he founded with his wife in 1993 to provide a Christian outreach to international students on college campuses. In his plea deal, Peterson admitted that he moved $475,000 in donations from the charity to his personal checking account between 2010 and 2014, draining virtually all of its funding, prosecutors said. The group had about three dozen contributors annually. The guilty plea concerned his personal 2013 tax filing when he failed to report $114,000 diverted from the group as taxable income. This charge carries up to three years in prison, and Peterson may be required to pay restitution to the group's donors. Peterson said that he struggled with a sex addiction over the last decade and used the donations to pay for it, along with credit card debt and home equity lines of credit, prosecutors said. They didn't go into detail about what he bought with all of the money, and it goes out and gives some more details of the case, but that's the important part that we read. Now, many of you, I'm hoping, are kind of incensed by this, right? You're upset that there would be a a guy who is professing to be a Christian, and whether he is or isn't, that's, that's not for today, but he's professing to be a Christian. He's got a sex addiction, okay, but then not only all of that, but he's taking money and he was using it to fund his addiction. Not only was he taking money to fund his addiction, not only did he cause himself bankruptcy, basically, by maxing out his credit cards, Well, he took the money of 36 or so people, took the money that they were donating to be used towards a good thing, to be used towards this ministry reaching international college students. So people were giving money to him, and instead he's turning that money around, and instead of using it the way that he says he's using it, he's using it to fund a sinful habit, a sex addiction, as he says. So this is what we see happening, and as Christians, this should outrage us. As people, this should outrage us. That money that was given for a good purpose to see the gospel go forth was used in one of the most horrendous ways possible. And that should make us upset. It should make us 
wonder why this could ever happen, and yet it did happen. And you say, well, what does this have to do with trials? Well, this was a good gift that was used as an opportunity for evil. The gifts that were given were a good gift that was used as an opportunity for evil. And what I want to say about trials this morning in the very same way is this. It's going to be tough. This is a tough thing to talk about, but this is it. God gives us trials as good gifts, but Satan tries to use them for evil purposes. I want to be careful when I say this, and we're going to look at a lot this morning, so don't, don't hear me say one thing and shut off, okay, because there's a lot that we're going to talk about today. But a lot of times when suffering and trials come, this is what I hear and this is what you've heard and maybe you've said it and I'll be honest, I've said it. When a trial comes, our first response is this. Satan is attacking. Satan is causing this. Satan is trying to to get in through this trial. Now here's the thing. I think that's technically true in a sense, but not completely true. Listen to me. As we look at Scripture... We're going to see this morning that God is the ultimate source of trials. That includes suffering. He is sovereign over all, and that includes suffering. That includes trials. That includes hardships. But when we say that Satan is causing something or Satan is attacking, it's not the sense that he's bringing that trial because God is the one that is sovereign over that trial, but it's that he's trying to hijack God's purposes. He's trying to say, God, you want this trial to do good. I'm going to change it. I'm going to take this person who's going through a trial. I'm going to drag them through sin. And I am going to cause them to blaspheme you, really, is what Satan tries to do through a trial. So when we face trials, and why are we talking about this? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. For whatever reason, at this point in our church, there are trials that are coming at us from the left and from the right and from the front from the back. We've got a pastor who's been in the hospital for a long time. We've got family who is struggling with that. We've got Ron Godown now who is in the hospital with a stroke. We've got Charlene Reedy who went through a a surgery. We've got family members that are dying of cancer. We've got so many things happening in this church right now that it is a time of trial. It is a time of tribulation. And I don't know if it's going to get better anytime soon or if it's only going to get worse or if it's going to get better. I don't know. But what I do know is right now God wants to do something and yet Satan doesn't want to let it happen. So today I want to take some time and look at what the Bible says about trials, about what God is doing, and, and hopefully that will help us as we face each trial to look it in the face, understand it's a gift for our good, which is hard to understand, I understand, and not let Satan use it for evil. And that's what we're going to talk about. A little bit of review. If, uh, it was about, I thought it was only a couple months ago, but I actually went back in our archives and I found out that this sermon I preached was actually about eight months ago. It was last September, uh, and it was called General Quarters, if you remember that sermon. In the sermon General Quarters, we talked about the fact that we need to be prepared for trials. We looked at the book of Job. We looked at the fact that he was blameless and upright, that he lived a blameless, holy life, that he lived an upright life in which he was just and he followed God with integrity. And all of those things were to prepare him for the trials to come. And we talked about, we looked at James chapter 1, uh, verse 2, that it says, consider it joy when you fall into trials. We looked at the fact that trials are not a question. Trials are not a when, if they happen. Trials are a when. Trials will happen and we need to be prepared for them. Well, I believe in the time since that sermon, since we looked at James and we looked at Job and we saw that trials are going to come and we need to be prepared, well, they're here. So now as trials are here, what do we need to understand about trials? So this morning we're going to look at the source. We're going to look at how Satan tries to twist 
God's purposes for trials. And then next week, we're going to look at what we should do and what we shouldn't do in the face of trials. Some of it will be stuff you've heard before. Some of it may be new. So as we're going to read James 1, 2 through 18 in just a minute, but these are the three things we're going to see when we read this. We're going to see the first thing is that God is the one who gives trials. We already said that, but God is the one who gives trials. They don't come from anybody else. God is sovereign and he gives trials. The second thing we're going to look at is that, yes, God gives trials and he has a purpose, a good purpose for our trials. And the third thing we're going to look at is that Satan wants to take these trials and twist them for his purposes. So as we talk about twisted trials, we're talking about Satan trying to twist the trials that God has given each and every one of us, and it looks different in all of our lives, and, he want, and Satan wants to twist them for his own purposes. Just like going back to this article, these good gifts that were turned into evil, and that's what Satan is trying to do with the gifts that God is trying to give us as well. So let's turn to James. Let's go to the book of James with me in James chapter 1, pretty famous passage especially when talking about trials. But let's go ahead and go there. Let's start right in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's that mention of James being a bondservant, a slave, chained to the chariot if we go back to last week. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Let's stop there for a second just to give a little bit of background. The book of James is written to the Jewish believers who have now been dispersed. They're out of Jerusalem because of persecution. They're facing trials. And so why, that might give you a little bit of an idea of why James jumps right in here in in verse 2 and says, look, count all trials as joy. Because the people he's writing to are right in the midst of trials as he writes. So as we listen to this, let's understand it with that context. So in verse 2 we read this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you be will be made perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation... Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower fails, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. All right, we're going to stop there and we're going to take some time to unpack what we see here in the book of James. And we're going to start by looking at verse 2 and verse 17. I know your, your uh, outline says 18. That was a misprint on my part. So it's actually 17. James 1.2 and James 1.17. So let's take some time and look at those specifically. In James 1, chapter two or verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And then we go on, and in this same passage, in the context, remember, is trials. 
We're still in the same context. Things have not changed. I think a lot of times in James we can take isolated verses and not remember that actually they all connect with one another. In the same passage talking about trials, we come down to verse 17. What does it say? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Now he writes this in contrast to the verses that precede it, which say that that sin is trying to cause death through temptation. The idea here is, is that trials God is trying to use as a good gift, but if we're not careful, we go back a few verses, it can be used for temptation, it can be used for sin, but God wants it to be a good gift. Going back to verse 2, what is this? God is giving the test. It does not say here that this is something that uh, is happening because of Satan. It says that God is testing our faith to produce patience. God is producing good things. Satan doesn't produce good things. So it's obvious that it's not Satan saying, I, I, I'm going to test them so that they receive patience. This is God saying, look, trials are tests. And the test is to get you to be patient, to be perseverant, to endure. That's what God wants to do through a trial. So trials are to be seen as a gift, not a curse. See, I think we miss out on this because a lot of times we see trials and I know a lot of you are hurting today and I want to be very sensitive about that because I know how hard it is sometimes to see suffering and it is not something that's good in a sense. Suffering is as a result of sin. It is a result of the fall and suffering should not be in this world, but it is and God is still sovereign over it. So we see that God wants to use trials and suffering as our gift, not as a curse. If we neglect to see that, then we're not going to get out of the trials what God wants us to get out of it. If we look at trials and say, this isn't fair. If we look at trials and say, this is Satan doing this. If we look at the trials and we say, this is a terrible thing. This is a curse to me. Then we're going to miss out on what God wants to do. And that is not where we need to be. And you say, I I don't know. I, I don't know about this. This is hard to hear that God is the one who is giving good gifts as trials. Well, I want to go to Deuteronomy. This is a, kind of a side note, if you will, but we're going back to the book of Deuteronomy. And as we do, we're going to look at this very powerful verse in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Deuteronomy 32, 39, this is what we read. Now see that I... This is God speaking. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. To that point, amen, we say yes. But then listen what he says. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There, are, there, is, there is none who can deliver from my hand. This is God's direct word saying, and what does he say? Is, Look, I am in control of all things. There is no God beside me. I am the one that decides all things. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. See, God doesn't do just the things that we expect him to do. He doesn't just do the good things we expect. He does those things. But he is sovereign over all things. You know what? Healing wouldn't have its power if there was no death or suffering. And we see that God, is his hand is in suffering. That he is sovereign. All things, including suffering and trials, come from the sovereign hand of God. So when we look at trials, 
We know that God is the one that is doing them. And in just a minute, we'll look at why, because that's an important question to ask. But for one more point, so we can look at this and see this in, a, in its full uh, complexity of what we see about trials, we need to go to the book of Job. I think the book of Job recently has become, i uh, just saying this this morning to my wife, and it's kind of weird, but I think the book of Job has become, if you were allowed to have a favorite book in the Bible, this would be it. And it's because there is so much truth about who God is and there's so much truth about how sovereign he is over all things. And I think even though it's a book that is full of anxiety and it's a book that is full of of hurt and pain and suffering, it is a book that shows us, gives us ultimate comfort in the sovereign God who is over everything. So as we go to the book of Job, we're going to see some hard things as we look at the book of Job. First of all, I want to look at Job 1. 8 through 11. And we see that the book of Job leaves no question that God is the source of trials and suffering. There's no question after we look at Job. Uh, Job leaves no question that God is the source of trials and suffering. And you're going to say, wait a minute, I thought Satan came to God and Satan said, let me test Job. And, and Satan did. And so God allowed it, but he didn't actually do it. Well, I want to tweak your mind a little bit. Because we look at Job chapter 1, let's see what it says. Job chapter 1, verse 8 is where we're going to start. Uh, Job chapter 1 Verse 8 through 11, and here's what we read. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and all that he has on every side? And you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then we, I want to, a parallel passage is just a few verses later. is chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. This is the second time Satan comes before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, uh, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that man has, he will give his life, give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. And then he will surely curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Now this is kind of an interesting passage. Because at face value, it looks like Satan is the one that's go- that is the, the cause of suffering, right? That is, at face value, that's what we see. But let's look at a little deeper. Because first of all, I want to make this point. In both cases, in both cases, this is not Satan coming to God and saying, Hey God, I see Job down there. He's looking pretty good, but I want to test him. Let me do it. Okay, that's not what happens. It's actually, this, is, this was mind-blowing to me when I saw this. What actually happens is Satan is before the throne with the other angels and God sees him and says, Satan, why are you here? Or where have you been? He says, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth. And then God says, have you considered my servant Job? Wow. God is setting Job up. There's no other way to say it. He says, hey, Satan, look at him. Look what he's got. And then then Satan says, well, of course he's, he's, he's following you. But then the interesting thing, the next thing that Satan says, and this shows that even Satan understands that he has no real power, because what Satan says here um, in verse, uh, verse 11, he says, if you touch all, okay, he says in verse 11, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to his face. 
Satan even understands that he is not the one that has the power to cause the suffering, that God will stretch out his hand. And you say, wow. But then in, verse, in chapter 2, the same thing is said. And there's even another phrase in here that makes me go, wow. Because the other phrase that is used in chapter 2, verses 3, in verse 3, we see this at the end. It says, and still he holds fast to his integrity. This is God talking. This is God talking. And still he holds fast to his integrity, even though we've done all these things. Although you have incited me against him. God, so now we see that God understood, or Satan understood that it was God that was in control of this. Now God says, look, you've incited me against him. He is the, the source. He is the one causing the trial. See, the only way I can kind of describe this a little bit, and it's not a perfect illustration, and I understand that, but Satan is the agent of suffering, okay? I want to be clear about that. Because God is not evil, and he doesn't want to hurt anybody, so he's using Satan to do it. It's kind of similar to a murder-for-hire type of deal. That's the only thing I can really think of. Because the person that hires the person to go kill that person or is not the one doing it, but yet they're the one that is overseeing it. Does that make sense? And that's kind of what's happening here. Because Satan is going to be the one that's going to go out and actually physically touch Job. Okay, He's going to be the one to do these different things. But God is the one, ultimately, that is responsible. We see that from God's perspective. We see that from Satan's perspective. They both understand that God is the one that is doing this, that God is stretching out his hand to cause the suffering, and that God was, in, was incited against Job. Now, the third character in the book, we see Satan, we see God. We also see this third character, which is the namesake of the book, and that's Job. So let's turn over to Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12, and even Job himself understands that God is the one that is causing the suffering. So God understands it, Satan understands it, and now we see Job is going to understand it. In verse 12, 7 through 10. So Job 12, 7 through 10. It says, But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain it to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In, those hand, in, his, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? See, Job is talking about his suffering, and he's got friends that are coming to him and trying to tell him that what's happening to him is Job's fault. Saying, Job, you're in sin, and therefore you're being punished. You're in sin, and that is why you are suffering. But Job says no. God is doing this for a reason. Even all of creation can see it, that God is the one doing this. See, there's no question in Job's mind that the hand of God has done this. The hand of God has caused his suffering. So we see that God knows, Satan knows, even Job knows. And then we're going to see even Job's, the people around Job knew as we go to the end of the book and go to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, we're going to look at verse 11. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. This is after Job was restored, and we know that the end of the story of Job is incredible, that God restores everything to him. 
But let's not forget that even though everything's restored, he still lost his whole family. Like, you don't replace family, right? I mean, he, it's not like everything, okay, well, everything was good now. No, there was still issues going back. But everybody comes to him that was around him during this time, that was around him before this, and they come, and what do they say? They comfort him for this reason. To comfort him as a result of the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. So now we see him four times in Job. It's five times really, but it's clear that God, Satan, Job, and everyone around him understood that God was the one who was the source of this suffering. That it's not Satan that's the source. Satan is the agent, but God is the one that is doing this. And why does God do it? Well, that's where we're going to go to next. Because God is not just causing suffering for suffering's sake. Okay, we've got to understand that. God is not unrighteous in any way, and we'll look at that later. But the idea here is that God wants to use trials for a specific purpose, for a specific reason. He wants to use a trial for your good, for my good. The trials we're going through as a church, he wants to use for our good, for every single person. He has a purpose. There's no question about that. Going back to the book of James, our main passage here, we'll go back to James and see what it has to say about this. And in James chapter 1, where we're back, once again reading verses 2 through 4, and then we're going to go over to verse 12 as well. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then in verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. If you see this, you see trials and temptation are given for our good. They're given, first of all, we see this testing for our good, that we will have endurance. And we also see this idea that we are blessed if we endure temptation, the temptation that comes along with trials. So as we look at this, let's, let's, take, let's take it apart. And the first thing we're going to see is that trials are given for our good. God has a purpose. God has a purpose for our trials. He's not just looking to make people suffer. He's not just this mean puppet master that just wants to make his toys hurt. That's not it. Some people in the world would say that, but God has a real purpose for trials in your life, in my life, in all of our lives. And what is the purpose? Well, Romans 8, 28, many of you know that verse. Romans 8, 28. And we'll go there real quickly because we need to see this. In Romans 8, 28, it says this, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. God says in no uncertain terms here that all things work together for good. See, his trials, the good times, the bad times, his trials are for our good. No question about it. That is what he says. What I do here is for your good. He wants our good. So what is the good that he wants for us? Well, there's three types of good for us that I think and we can see through Scripture. And the first one is going back to James chapter 1, verse 2, and that is the obvious one. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It is for our good because God wants us to experience true joy. Now, okay, let's unpack this. And we've talked about this before, and I know you've heard this before. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Joy is not the same thing as temporary pleasure. Joy is a deep, abounding feeling and knowledge that God is in control and that we can have joy in knowing what's coming. We can have joy in knowing that God is doing something great in us. Because as we look at James, it says to have joy, and then it tells us why. It says because you have joy because you know it's going to cause your maturity, which we'll look at in just a second. So we're, we're to have joy. 
1 Peter 1, 6 and 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. And we won't go there this morning just because of time, but these are a couple other references that you could look at that show us, once again, that we are to rejoice in trials, that we are to find joy in trials. Now, here's the thing that I want to say. This does not mean that you need to smile through your trial. Well, that rhymed. I didn't even mean it to. That's cool. You don't have to smile through your trial. Listen, you can mourn, you can be upset, you can even have questions of God. We see that in Job, we see that throughout Scripture, we see that in Isaiah, we see that in so many of the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah is a big one, read Lamentations sometime, read the book of Psalms for that. And you'll see that it's not that you have to smile through everything and act like everything is okay and there's no problem at all. We should actually still have a a reaction against suffering because it still is against God's created order. It's still a, a symptom of sin and we need to react against that and we can grieve for that and we can be upset about that and that's not what this is talking about when it says joy. How do I know this? Well, in Hebrews 12, verse 2, we read this verse that says something very interesting and I want to go over there real quick. Uh, Hebrews 12, 2. I know this isn't in your outline. It's something that came to me after it was done. But 12, 2. Uh, Hebrews 12.2, it's just a few pages over from where we are in James. Uh, Hebrews 12.2, and I'll start in 1. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're told that Jesus had joy in going to the cross. So wait a minute. Jesus was not smiling as he was walking to the cross. Actually, if you remember, he's in the garden praying the night before when he gets betrayed. And he's praying so hard, he's sweating blood. Remember? He's upset. He's actually begging God, if you can take this cup, take it. Even though I know you can. If If there's any other way, let it be done. If there's any other way, please don't make me go through this. That's what he's asking. He's, there's emotion there. There's, he's upset. He's sweating blood. That's how upset he is. That's how concerned he is. He's not up pr- praying before he gets betrayed and giggling and laughing and having a joyful experience like that. Even on the cross itself. I mean, as he's being, as he's being beaten, as he's being killed, he's, he, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not, a happy-go-lucky, smiling type of thing to say. But what was the joy that Jesus had is that he knew that what he was going through, even though it took away his happiness temporarily, that the joy that would come as a result of what he would do on the cross was so surpassing any of the, the stuff that he was going to have to go through that it was worth it. And there was joy to be had because he knew the best was to come. And see, we can have that same thought as we go into joy in our trials. We may not see it now. It may take a long time for us to see it. But ultimately, God wants us to look to what is best, what is coming, not as what is happening right now. He wants us to find joy in knowing that it's in his hands and one day we will be with him and we will experience the ultimate joy that no one will ever experience except through Jesus Christ himself. And as we look to that joy, that's when we can say in trials that I can have true joy even though I can have mourning and ups- I can be upset and there can be tough times, I can have joy in knowing that God knows what he's doing. God is changing me and God one day will give me the ultimate source of joy that no one can take away. That is the joy that we can rely on when we face trials. 
It's not a temporary earthly joy. It's a joy that can only be found in Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice, in his love, and in his promises. That is the joy we can find. Jesus found joy in the cross because he knew that the best was still to come, that what he was doing was for the betterment of all of us and everyone who would know him because he was paying the price for sin for all time. So joy is not temporary. Joy is looking to what's coming, what's best. And as we continue on with James, we'll see that the next thing that for our good, trials not only will help us to have joy, but they'll also help us mature in our faith. James 1, 3 through 4, that we are seeing maturity here. 1, 3 through 4, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. God wants you to grow. He wants you to be mature. He wants you to be more like him. In Romans 8, where we were just at, where it says God causes all things to work together for good, Remember that passage in 28? Well, the very next verse in 29 tells us what good is all about. It says, For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God in 28 and those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. What does Romans tell us about what this good is? This good that is coming as a result of what God is doing? Well, it's to make us more like Christ. So we have joy, but then we also can experience Christian maturity, which in the end is Christ-likeness. We see that in James, we see that in Romans, we see that throughout Scripture. Anytime God brings suffering upon one of his children, it's to bring that person closer to him. It's to bring that person closer to being like him and that's what he wants for us through every trial we face big small little in between doesn't matter any trial he wants to make us more like him and that is the ultimate good so when i say good comes of everything it doesn't mean that there's still not going to be heartache and trial and problems but it does mean that he is going to make us more like him and that is as christians should be our ultimate desire and finally james talks about our eternal rewards First Peter 1 Peter 1.9, we'll also go over there real quick. But in James 1, to start with, in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he received the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We see this analogy used throughout Scripture, and the crown of life is referring to eternal life. It's referring to eternal life with Christ, the ultimate reward that any of us can receive. And he says, if you endure temptation you will have this crown of life. You will have the ultimate reward in heaven. And so not only is it for our good on this earth, for joy and our maturity, but it also will one day pay dividends for our our eternal rewards. And you say, wait a minute, that sounds selfish that we're worried about eternal rewards. Well, you know what God says and Jesus says time and time again, you will be rewarded when you get to heaven. And the idea here is that he wants us to understand that there is a reward to come, going back to the joy thing. There is a reward to come, and that will give us joy because we know that one day we will be with with God forever in heaven, forever and ever, and we'll be able to experience him And that is the ultimate reward that anyone can receive. And that's what he wants to push us towards when he gives us trials. 1 Peter 1.9 also speaks of this. A few pages over. 1 Peter 1.9. Let's go back to 8 to get some context. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Same idea here. Talking about salvation, the crown of life, salvation. It's all about the ultimate reward we have of being with God forever in heaven. So we see that God has a purpose, and his first purpose is it's for our good. That it's for our joy, it's for our maturity, and it's for our eternity. It's for our eternal rewards. Now also, trials are not only for our good. Remember, God's purpose is for our good, but ultimately, God's, the trials are actually for God's glory. Back to 1 Peter, where we just were. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, uh, and we're going to see this idea that God wants to make his glory seen. In uh, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, this is what we see. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, through it, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're talking about trials here, and what does Peter say? Well, he says, look, you're going to be tried by fire, but the trial that you're going to go through is going to prove your faith, which ultimately is going to end with giving honor, praise, and glory to Jesus Christ himself. You see, our maturity and what God is doing through our trials in our lives is not just for our good. Ultimately, it's actually for God's good. He wants people to look at us and say, look, this is a person who is following God, who is growing closer to Christ, even in the midst of trials. And when that happens, God is glorified. He receives honor, praise, and glory. And as we think about that, we go back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a very clear passage when we talk about all of this. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 10, uh, this is incredible that Isaiah is writing this as God is talking to him. And it starts in verse 9. We'll go there first, and then we'll hit verse 10 as well. In Isaiah 48, verses 9 and 10. And this is what it says. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. But, then he says, behold, I have refined you, not as silver, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. He talks about being refined. And he says, why do I refine you? Well, the same idea of refining is testing. It's putting something through the fire. It's making sure that it's going to stand up to the fire. And so a trial is what we're talking about here in Isaiah. And what does it say? It says, look, you have been tested in the furnace of affliction. That's what it says in verse 10. But it says, it's for my sake. And God says it twice. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And how will I give my glory to another? When we face trials, God wants to come out looking wonderful. He wants to come out looking glorious. And so as we go through trials, he wants to work in our lives so that he will be seen as glorious. Now you say, well, why God can do that without causing suffering. Well, that is true. God could. But let's think about this. What greater glory could God receive than for this world to see someone who is a follower of Jesus, even in the worst case scenario where they're facing suffering, death, hardship, whatever it might be, what greater glory can be seen by this world than for somebody to say of of that person, he's going through this and he's going through that and his life is being destroyed and yet he trusts in God. That is how God gets glory. Because then people say that's not about, that doesn't happen normally. 
Okay, I've been to the hospital a lot the last couple weeks. And I'll tell you what, as you look at people, you can tell the people that have hope and the people that have none. We as Christians have hope. And that comes through, and in, in especially you see John, you see even Charlene, everybody, even Ron as he was being put into an ambulance. He was trusting God even in the midst. They were all trusting God in the midst of their suffering. And what greater glory will God get than when people see that? That is how God wants to be glorified, and he will be glorified because he cares about his reputation. He doesn't want people to see suffering and think God is bad. He wants to see people persevering through suffering so they will say God is good. And that is what his ultimate goal is. And back to the book of James, as we conclude this part of what we're looking at. James 5.11. And we go back to Job a little bit. So this is where James and Job actually connect, which is really cool, because up to the point where I decided that Job was my favorite book, James was my favorite book, so I kind of feel like I can get away with both. So, uh, but James 5.11 connects to Job. Um, and here's what we read. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Whew. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Have we read the book of Job? His family was taken away. All his goods were taken away. Everything he had and everything he knew was gone. His very health was taken away. His very wife had given up on him and said, just curse God and die and get this over with. His own friends had come and said, Job, you're the problem. He had lost everything. What do you mean God is compassionate and merciful? But that's the point, isn't it? That even through that stuff, Job remained faithful Because he knew that God was compassionate and merciful. That even with all those things... See, this is where the whole phrase of don't accuse God of not being fair because if he was to be fair, then we wouldn't deserve anything and we'd all be destined towards hell and there'd be no hope. That's what fair is because we deserve it, right? But God is not fair, thank goodness. He's just and he's loving and he's merciful and he gives us things that we don't deserve and he doesn't give us the things we do deserve. That's grace and mercy for you. And God does all that and he is to be seen as compassionate and merciful even in the trials, even in the hard times because even as bad as the trials are, it's not as bad as it should be, right? Even in the trials, God wants to make things good. He wants to refine us. But even when it seems like it's hurtful and there's no way up, Remember that God has already redeemed us. God has given us his righteousness. God has given us his holiness. And he is allowing us to live. And one day we will spend forever in heaven with him. These are the good things he's given. So even in the face of trials, we can see God as compassionate and merciful. And yes, he, he restored Job, and that's part of this. But I don't think that's the ultimate meaning of him being compassionate and merciful. He was compassionate and merciful that he looked out for Job even in the midst of his trial. So God is there to be compassionate and merciful even when it doesn't seem like it. So God wants to be seen as compassionate and merciful. He wants to be seen as glorious. And he does that through our faith in the face of trials. So God has a purpose and it's for our good and it's for his glory. So with all that being said, now we get to the point where we see that Satan does have a part to play, right? So, although Satan is not the one that is doing this, it is not that it is not that he is attacking by causing the trials. God is causing the trials for a good reason. But see, Satan wants to take those good trials that are meant for our good and meant for God's glory, 
and turn it on its head and do exactly the opposite. He wants to twist our trials so that they become something evil instead of something good. So let's look at the context as we're looking at this. In James 1, 13 through 16 is kind of where we get a glimpse of this. In James 1, uh, 13 through 16. And we'll look at this more next week uh, as we talk about how we respond to trials. But let's hit this real quickly. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. All right. This passage is very clear about where temptation comes from. Temptation to do evil. And it's not from God. See, when God brings a trial, it's not so that we will sin. God brings a trial so that we will grow closer to him. That's what scripture tells us. But our flesh, which ultimately the Satan wants to use our flesh, our flesh wars against that. Our flesh says, in a trial, temptation's going to come. Because in a trial, that's when we're going to be tested on whether we're going to stay faithful to God or whether we're going to sin and give over ourselves to sin because of the suffering we're going through. And Satan wants to use our flesh to bring a temptation to sin. So he wants to twist God's good purpose of, of bringing us closer to Christ, and he wants to actually use the trial to make us fall away from Christ. That is Satan's goal. He wants to use our flesh to cause us to sin. And sin, as we just see, brings forth death. He wants destruction. He wants us to be destroyed. That is his goal. So when trials come, he wants to take that trial and turn it into a temptation, and he wants to defeat us in the sense that he wants us to sin and give over to our sinful, fleshly nature. James tells us that's not God. Okay, that's our flesh. And we need to not follow that. Because then it follows up and says that we need to, that God is the one giving good gifts and that we need to look to him and not to sin. Okay, so we see that as a truth here in James. Uh, we know out of, from Satan too as we go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter talks about Satan. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. One of the most classic passages we have talking about what Satan likes to do. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings which are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory through Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Don't let Satan have dominion. He's talking about temptation here. He's talking about trials. And he says, Be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. See, it kind of goes back to what we just looked at in James. Satan wants to use a trial to devour us. He wants to bring in temptation and cause sin to overtake our life. So he will devour our testimony. He will devour what we stand for. He will devour our faith. That is what Satan wants to do. He wants to destroy. That's Satan's only goal in life is to kill and to destroy. That's what he does. And that's what he's doing here. That's what he wants to do through our suffering. Through our suffering, he wants to devour us. But God says, don't be devoured. But instead, he gives us the other Side. It says, resist Satan, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings goes on, but the God of all grace who called us by his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Don't let Satan win. Don't let Satan devour you. Instead, look to God in your trial. 
That's what Peter says. So we need to look to God and not let Satan have a foothold. And then finally, going back to Job as we look at Satan and how he twists trials. I told you we'd be kind of all over the place, but we're back to Job. As we look at Job 1.11 and 2.5. Job 1.11 and 2.5. I think we've already read these, but I want to read them again. In chapter 1, verse 11, this is Satan talking. He says, But now stretch out your hand against Job and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. 2 5. And Satan says again, But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan's ultimate goal in temptation not only is to devour us, but it's to defame the name of God. That, Satan, that is what he does. His goal is to make God look as terrible as he possibly can because Satan hates God. Satan wants to be God in a lot of ways and he hates God and therefore he wants us to hate God. He wants this world to hate God. He wants to blind everyone and he wants us to hate him. So what? when we look at the book of Job, we've got to understand that Satan's objective here wasn't to destroy Job, it was actually to destroy God's name. He says, look, if, I, if you let me do these things, God, if you cause this, he's going to curse your name. And that's what Satan wants. He wants Job to say, God, you are wrong. God, you are unfair. God, this isn't okay and this is not you. You are not in control. That's what he wants Job to say, but Job doesn't. See, Job, Job is upset. He, he, he calls out and asks God just to say, why did you even let me be born? He's upset. He, he wishes he wasn't even around. But yet in all of that, he never says that God was wrong. Okay? He never says that God is unjust or, or wrong or unrighteous. He never does that. And see, Satan wants us to curse God's name. He wants us to use our suffering. He wants us to be so hurting that we will actually turn our words against God. And we'll look at that next week when we talk about using our tongue during a trial. He wants to turn our words and curse God's name. That is his ultimate goal. So Satan wants to destroy us and he wants to destroy the name of God. So we've seen three things this morning. We've seen that God is the ultimate giver of trials. He wants to use it for our good and God's glory, but Satan wants to use it to destroy us and destroy God's name. So let's conclude. God is the ultimate source of our trials and suffering. There is no question to this. This does not mean that we can charge him with wrongdoing or unrighteousness. I want to be clear on that. I am not saying that God somehow is unfair or unrighteous. God is righteous in all he does, Scripture tells us. And there's some verses there that, that you can look up about these different things. God is righteous, and, and in Daniel it says that we have no right to question whether he is righteous or not. God does what is right all the time, and all the time God does what is right. We don't have the right to question that because God is God and we are not. And we need to understand that. So even in the midst of trial, do not... We, I'm not saying this morning that God is a bad guy, that he's doing wrong or he's being unrighteous. God is righteous in all his gifts, even the ones that we don't like. God is righteous. God is just. We also see that God wants trials to be used for our good. We need to change our attitude about suffering, some of us, because some of us look at suffering and we think this is just Satan's way of trying to tear me down, and he wants to. But let's look at trials a little different. Let's say, God is giving me this trial for some reason. What is that reason so that I can become more like Christ? We need to be searching out what we can get out of the trials instead of how we can get out of it. Catch that? 
We need to not worry about how we can get out of the trials, but what we, what we can get out of the trials. And that's what we should be looking for, because God is the source. God wants us to be changed, to be renewed, to experience good, to experience joy, and to be matured. And if we don't look to God and say that this is from God, then we're going to miss out. If we think it came from Satan or we think it's just a coincidence, we're going to miss out on what God has for us. So make sure we're looking to see what God would have for us. Third thing we saw today, Satan is not sovereign over suffering. He's not. He does want to use it against us, though. See, one way you could say it is Satan wants to hijack God's plan. Satan wants to hijack God's trials so that he can use it for his own evil purposes. So let's not give Satan too much credit here. Okay, because you know what? He isn't sovereign. Sometimes we talk about Satan like he is, and he's not. God is sovereign. Satan's nothing. Through Jesus Christ, he had defeated him. And you know what? Satan thinks he's a whole lot. And I'm not saying he's not powerful. He is powerful. But in, in context of who God is, Satan's nothing. God is sovereign, not Satan. We, let's not give him too much credit. Let's make sure that we are looking to see what God wants us to get out of things and not continue to look and say this is a bad thing because it's a good thing in the end. God wants it to be for our good. Satan doesn't. But Satan is not sovereign. Satan does not have power over God. God has the ultimate power. So I want to encourage everybody here. Some of, us, some of you are going through trials right now. I can name you off, but I won't. Some of you have gone through trials recently. Some of you have trials that are coming. Some, and it's different, okay? It could be a physical thing. It could be a family thing. It could be a relational thing. It could, be, um, it could just be a spiritual battle. There's going to be trials. But let's look at them in a good way. See, don't let Satan twist our trials because we need to remember this, that Christ is the one that gives us victory. One more verse that we're going to close with. After I read this verse, the worship team will come back up and lead us in our last song. And before I read this verse, I just want us to remember that we are conquerors, that Christ gives us victory. Satan is not the one who can defeat us. Let's fall on Jesus, not give Satan the credit for anything and what trials you are going through look to god for what he can do in your life and through you because that's what he wants to do it's not going to make it easier it's still going to hurt it's still not going to be fun but we can have true joy because we know god is working and have trust in that and believe in that and look to see what he wants you to get out of the trials but I'm going to read Romans 8, 35 through 39, as we remember, ultimately, that in trials, God is the ultimate victor. And that's what I want to see. So Romans chapter 8, going back there this morning. And, we'll, and this will be a great place for us to end as we look at what God has for us. Romans chapter 8, we've been there a few other times this morning, we're going to go back. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. I want you to really listen to these verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of these things can separate us from his love.
I pray that you will remember that. As we sing this last song, remember that God's love trumps all. God cares for you even in the hardest of times. And his plan is for your good and his glory. Let's not let Satan get in the middle of that. Let's not let a good gift turn to evil. But instead, use God's gift for what God intended, that for our good and his glory.